Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. We are working our way through the uh, seven churches of Revelation. And we are, last week we, we introduced uh, by looking at chapter 1. There's a lot going on there. And what we see is that at the center of the book of Revelation is Christ. So any interpretation of any passage in Revelation must begin with Christ. And I would argue the second thing we need to see is its application to the local church and the members of that church. And that is where we are looking at starting in chapter 2. We want to look at the church of Ephesus in verses 1 to 7. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The Apostle John writes on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bear bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Help us to read and understand this text. Open our hearts, our mind, our eyes and ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, uh, that we might receive and interpret and apply this text. May we love you with a genuine love. And may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May we see him. You tell me, what if your spouse or any spouse remembered every anniversary, remembered every vacation, went to every event with the outlaws, remembered every birthday and holiday, provided and served and did everything you would ever want in a spouse, yet was indifferent and cold towards you? How long do you think that relationship will last? Truth is, love is more than just duty. Uh, I saw a movie one time where, where the wife was wanting to, to, to uh, arrange a renewing of the vows after 30 years or whatever it was. And, and the husband didn't see the point in doing any of this. After all, it's going to cost a lot of money. It was going to be a lot of work and headaches and picking out colors and dresses and all this sort of stuff. And he, he said to his wife, honey, I said I do. And I did, didn't I? It is that sort of attitude, though true, can demonstrate how love can, needs to be both faithful and at the same time real. It cannot be both faithful and 
code. We meet here what many call the loveless church, the church of Ephesus. This is the same church in Asia Minor that Paul would write his letter to uh, earlier in, in the first century. But, but, but here we have John, who likely had pastored there for, for some time, is writing to these first Christians. And what we have here is both the good and the bad of this church. Let's, let's start with the good here at the church of Ephesus. And the main good is that they are faithful. Now, you see it there in verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, one of the things you'll, you'll find in these seven letters is that they open and conclude in really the same sort of language. Now, the, uh, the imagery is different. Here, you, you see that he has the seven stars in, in his right hand, and later he'll speak of the tree of life. And those are different in, in each of the seven letters. However, the general introduction greeting and conclusion follow the same sort of pattern throughout each seven. Now, it is here where I think, think that we need to pause and consider what in the world do we do with apocalyptic imagery in Revelation? The reason so many of us love the book of Revelation is because it's so cryptic. So the reason why so many of us don't like Revelation all at the same time is because it's cryptic, right? I mean, what do you do with all this wild imagery? Can I offer just five interpretive uh, insights into what to do with Revelation? The first is to say that the text determines the interpretation. One thing you'll find with a lot of people when they go crazy with the book of Revelation and, and likely will start their own cult, no doubt, and, and, and be a, a bestseller, is that they, they find a verse and then they run with it all the while taking it out of its immediate context. So, so, so let the text itself determine its meaning. Secondly, what you need to do in Revelation is vir virtually every verse of the book is relying on something in the Old Testament, right? So, so what you need to do is you need to appreciate and understand its Old Testament sources. It's always quoting the Old Testament, always. For, just to give you a simple example, Babylon that shows up later has a precedent. Because Babylon is an Old Testament city, nation, right? And so, yes, it may be referencing something in the future or whatnot, but we need to have it from its Old Testament context. Thirdly, we need to avoid wild goose chases that fit our eschatology. That is to say, what a lot of people do is they come to Revelation saying, this is what I believe about the end times. Now let me find it, right? Have you ever, ever done that with the Bible on anything? You have, right? We all have, right? And, and so what, what we do is, 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 is we, we, we think, okay, this has to fit into my end times theology. And so how can I make it fit? And so let us, let us be guarded from that. Fourthly, and this is really where I, I, I reflects more of how, how I approach Revelation. That is, I think we need to allow ambiguity when necessary. It's okay not to understand every little detail in the book of Revelation. It's okay not to understand. I'll give you a very simple example from verse 1. I do not know if verse 1, uh, it, it, we should translate that angel, like the ESV has it here, or translated as messenger, which your translation may say. It's the same word, angelos in Greek, just means messenger. That's why the word gospel means good message. It has the word angel in the Greek word, euangelion, right? And, and so, 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 so is it, an angel over every church? I don't know. Or is it 
written to the messenger, maybe the pastor or representative of each church. I don't know. And that's where I'm going to leave it, right? I don't know because I don't know, right? But it certainly doesn't affect our interpretation of, of the text. I think Alistair Begg is right when he says the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. When we get distracted by little details and then just go crazy with them, that's usually whenever we, we end up making our mistakes. Finally, do not be dogmatic unless the text is dogmatic. Dogmatic. That is to say that, 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 again, main things are plain things, plain things are, are main things. When it comes to revelation, we like to take the obscure, the, the obscure and the cryptic and just go crazy with them. Well, with that said, here what we see is that the text gives us the answer to a lot of these symbols. So we get the seven stars, right? We, we saw that last week in chapter one. The seven stars represent the seven angels or the seven messengers of the seven churches. The seven golden lampstands we see in chapter one, verse 20, represent the seven churches. So, so you see an emphasis on number seven. Throughout Revelation, throughout the Bible, obviously the number of completion and holiness going all the way back to Genesis 1. After all, the first verse of the Bible is seven words. The second verse of the Bible is 14 words. It's all in the context of telling us what happened in seven days of creation, right? The Bible is full of imagery with the number seven. So we see here are seven churches and seven representatives of those churches. What is important for us to see, right? Because we want to see Christ and we want to see the beauty of his lordship over the church is that what matters is that Christ Christ is walking among the seven golden lampstands. He is walking among his churches. So it isn't that Christ simply ascended into heaven and is like, okay, guys, figure it out. Right? That's my, that's the way I pair it, right? Y'all are old enough. You'll figure it out. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing is that, yes, he rules and reigns from the right hand throne of the Father. Yet at the same time, through the imagery of apocalyptic literature, he is walking among his churches. He is among his people. But notice here, we, Jesus identifies three good things about this church, right? And I would say that if we have these three things, we're a pretty good church. So, so, so let, us, let us celebrate with this church what Jesus says they're getting right. Makes you wonder, what would Jesus say that we're getting right? I don't want you to answer that out loud, right? You can, you can put it in an email, leave it in drafts, and never send it to me, okay? That, that's because I'm afraid of what emails I might get. <laughs> uh, here are three things Jesus says they get right. The first thing they get right is their works. Notice there in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patience. Now, I just want you to pause. If Jesus said to you, I know your works, would you assume that is a positive thing or a negative thing? Chances are, if your parents said something like that, if your principal or your director said something like that, you're going to assume, oh no, they're on to me. But Jesus says, I know your works, and he's praising them. You're a people who, who you pursue righteousness, you pursue discipleship, you, you pursue, you, 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 you grow in, as, as Christians with endurance, you are persevering through troubling times. I know your works. But you notice, secondly, it's not just their works, he praises, but their faithfulness. Notice again in, in verse 2, uh, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, who is he talking about here? We'll go down to verse 6. 
Verse 6, I believe, tells us where it says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, what we see here clearly is within the church is an internal threat of false teaching. So we begin with 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 uh, 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 personal right holiness and the church is growing in holiness and their works. And here we see internal threats, right? And is the internal threats of false teaching. Now the question is, who are the Nicolaitans? Who who are they? Well, let me put eight years of cemetery training at work here. Okay, you ready? Here it goes. We don't know. Okay, I paid a lot of money to give you that. And, and if that doesn't bless you, I just don't know. I just don't know what you want from me. I wrote all those papers, read all those books. And, and I just don't think you all can appreciate that. Right? Now, we have some ideas. There's always ideas. I mean, when it comes to Revelation, we've got some ideas. Let me give you two options of what we can do with the Nicolaitans. The first is, now, you may write this down because you may forget it. They might be followers of a guy named Nicholas. You get that? I, I bet you couldn't have come up with that, could you? Now, who's Nicholas? Well, we've got ideas. We meet a Nicholas in the Bible. He's not a saint. He's a deacon, right? It's the opposite, okay? <laughs> right? But Deacon Nicholas is among the first of the deacons, along with Stephen, ordained as deacons in Acts chapter 6. And there is some evidence, not strong evidence, but there is some evidence that that Nicholas, who, who was a deacon, did branch off and, and engage in some heretical teaching, and his movement seemed to have been spreading. So it's very possible that Nicholas, remember Nicholas is a Greek name, those deacons were chosen as Greeks to serve the Greeks, and it's very possible he found himself in Asia Minor, and, and his teaching was creeping into the church. That is a very possible interpretation. The second possible interpretation, which I think is more likely, certainly from the evidence we have, is that the Nicolaitans is an early form of what is known as Gnosticism. Now, we don't have time to go into a lot of detail in Gnosticism, um, but you've heard of Gnosticism. Anyone ever heard of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code? All that nonsense is Gnosticism, the Gospel of Thomas and the Infancy Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, you know, because Mary Magdalene and Jesus were in love, right? And all that sort of nonsense, right? That comes from the Gnostics. Now, what we see here is that the word Nicolaitan comes from two Greek words. The first is Nike, or I mispronounced it, Nike, okay, for, for you Americans here, right? And, and the word Nike comes from a Greek word, Nike, which means to conquer or really victory. That's what Nike means by. And it comes from the, the Greek word laos, which means people. So, so, so some see this as, as, as a hierarchical source sort of thing. If you go down to verse 14 and 15, uh, uh, where, where Jesus is speaking to the church in Pergamum, notice it says there, uh, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. There's you an Old Testament reference, which means you can't understand that without understanding who Balaam is in the Old Testament. Who taught Balak, another reference to the Old Testament, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now notice there that the, the, the Balaam-Balak reference is in the context of the Nicolaitans. The reason that's important is, is because the, the Gnosticism, when applied to the church, took Greek philosophy and applied it. So, for example, in Greek philosophy, the flesh is bad. The spirit is good. So the goal in life is to, is to escape this fleshly self. Let me see if I can put it this way. 
They argue that there is an inner spark inside of you. Ain't this sound familiar? Narcissism's still around. We just changed the language a little bit. If you ever watch Oprah, you know Gnosticism pretty well. You know, you just need to, need to find that inner spark. And inside of you is a, is a little piece of the divine. If you watch enough prosperity heretics, you're going to hear enough of this, right? You have creative power. You can create happiness for yourself, right? This is Gnosticism. So the goal is to escape the flesh. And there's two ways to escape the flesh. One is to asceticism. You, you, you just, you, you, don't, you don't eat, you, you, don't, you don't buy anything, right? That, that sort of stuff. The more prominent argument was you indulge the flesh because that's not the real you. You ever seen someone stand up and give a public apology? And they say, look, I'm sorry I did this. That's not who I really am. That's Gnosticism. And so what you have then is they take the grace of God and they use it as a license to indulge the flesh. And that's likely what it is you have here when we look at Pergamum and Ephesus together, the two references. In fact, you read the early church and they seem to indicate this. Arrhenius described the Nicolaitans as living, quote, lives of unrestrained indulgence. Clement of Alexandria says that they, quote, abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there is a movement among you. There's a movement that is threatening you, and you guys have proven to be faithful. That is good, right? Now, do, do modern churches deal with internal threats of false teaching? Absolutely it does. All the time. You, 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 I used to work at a Christian bookstore. There were some, some aisles that I prefer none of our customers ever shopped there, right? I had one person had a work of what I consider heresy. It's like, is this a good book? And, and, and as an employee, I couldn't say, oh, it's trash. We shouldn't even be selling it because then I couldn't feed my wife, right? right? You know, that was sort of important. But what I said was a lot of people have bought it. Right? <laughs> it's like, I hope you're not one of them, but a lot of people have bought that book. Yes, this is a constant threat. And, and, and Jesus praises them for their faithfulness. Here's the third thing they praise the church for. Their works, their, their, their faithfulness, and thirdly, their endurance. You can go back there to the end of verse 2. He mentions patient endurance. And then he goes on to verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. The, the theme of patient endurance is a common theme in Revelation, maybe something worth looking at in the coming weeks. Chapter 1, verse 9, we saw it last week. I, John, your brother, and a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 19, with the church of Thyatira, it says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. In chapter 3, verse 10, with the church of uh, Philadelphia, not that Philadelphia, the one in Asia Minor, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Chapter 13, verse 10, here is the call for endurance and faith of the saints. Chapter 14, verse 12, here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is a major theme. What Jesus wants is, yes, there will be internal threats. Be faithful. There will be external threats. What does he say? Endure with faithfulness. Endure with faithfulness. And he looks at this church and he says, look, you have a lot of good things going on about you. You are a faithful church. You're growing in discipleship. You are keeping back threats of false teaching and you are maintaining the faith despite threats from Caesar. You are a faithful church. And in all of this, they, they, they should be praised. And then we should give them praise. And it's a goal that we should have. 
So clearly this is a church that held fast to the, to the truth. The problem, here's the bad. They were faithful, yes. But they were very cold. They are very cold. Despite the good, there is one thing Jesus is concerned with, and that's laid out for us in verse 4. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Boy, that stings, doesn't it? That stings. You ever been, maybe the boss has brought you in or a teacher or someone you admire, and they, they bring you in and they say, look, all these things about you are just excellence. But because you fail in this one area, none of it matters. I, I, I'm a coach and I love coaching. Let me tell you, you can have players who have all the skill in the world. They can do everything right, but if they don't play hard, it won't matter. It won't matter. So too, what we have here is a church that is faithful with the truth, but is cold when it comes to love. Truth without love is cold. The language reminds us of a slow decay from passion to endurance. Like many relationships that begin with a lot of passion that turn to cold indifference, you just get used to one another. So too, we have a church that has lost its first love. You know, one of the things about us humans is that we prefer our extremes. We prefer black and white sim uh, uh, simplicity. Republican versus Democrat, and, 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 and you can't find anything in the middle. If you ever say, you know what, the other side's got a good point there, you're, you're a terrible human being, right? Chevy versus Ford. We won't mention Dodge, right? They're not even part of the conversation, right, father-in-law? Liberal versus conservative, right? You got to choose. You got to choose. Grace versus works, right? You know, I heard a preacher one time, he said, when I moved to Kentucky, everyone's like, what side are you on? He's like, what side am I? I don't know what you're talking about. He said, Louisville or Kentucky, right? He, he, I'm sure, gave the wrong answer. Goes to college, right? He's seminary. Like, what side are you on? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Calvinist or Arminian, right? And I'm sure he gave the wrong answer there. Right? He said, everywhere I went, it's what side are you on, right? And that's true for all of us. We, we, we judge each other by which side we're on. We love these extremes. And so, too, we have an extreme here, truth versus love. And you'll find a lot of churches... A lot of Christians, they want to be a people of truth and only the truth, right? We want to hear the truth. And if you ain't pounding the pulpit on the truth, it ain't real truth, preacher. But then there's all the churches who are willing to abandon the truth in the name of love. And so on the one hand, we want truth at the cost of love. The other, we want love at the cost of truth. And we wonder why neither one of them is a true church. This slope to cold truth is easy to, to, to succumb to. It's easy to love your neighbor until they become your enemy and seek your destruction. Do you think this church is corporately, publicly, and actively praying for their persecutors? Would you do that? I could tell you from what I see with American evangelicalism, the answer is no. We don't pray for our enemies. We're not, we're not seeking the welfare of the city. We're seeking for our own party to win, to deal with all those other people who are a thorn in our side. Do you look at those on the other side of the aisle with cold indifference or with a true love now? Do you think they were praying for the apostates threatening their church? 
Many of us have our time doing that now. I wonder if they increasingly saw their neighbors as threats and so hardened their hearts to them. Doesn't this sound familiar to us today? It's becoming increasingly common that churches are judged by their political and social convictions than they are to their faithfulness to Scripture. That is a recipe for cold love. I remember one instance in particular, there was a vote coming up in, in the town I was serving at, and it was, it was causing a lot of stir among the churches. And, and I refused to, to engage in that because I, I had neighbors and friends and people I was ministering to who, who were going to vote on the other side. So I didn't want to turn our property into a, a billboard, if, if you will. I'm trying to speak vaguely here. And I remember the, the frustration that caused among some of the church people. They didn't understand. But this is true, maybe. But there's still this part of love we've got to respect, isn't it? What are we communicating with some of this? I wonder if the Ephesians, like many American churches today, became more of a social club than an inviting place and a people to worship Jesus and tell others about him. I wonder if they viewed guests with suspicion, grew content and forsook missions, or succumbed to the trap of traditionalism. That would never happen here in America. I wonder because that's exactly what we're doing today. Persecution has yet to truly come, yet animosity towards our neighbors is a very real problem. Far too many of our congregations mimic private social clubs that are very hard to enter. And think about it. Can someone enter into our church? And I hope they can say, it's a church that believes in the truth. But can they enter our church and say, this is an easy place to be loved and to love? Can they say that? Many prefer discipleship without missions or missions without discipleship. How many of American evangelicalism is made up of cold worship? No amount of fog machines, no doubling down of more and more instruments will be able to drown out cold worship. Now, notice Jesus' response to this cancer within the church. It's, it, notice where he starts in, in verse 5. Remember, therefore, for where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Notice Jesus tells the church to do two things. They both start with R, so he's doing all the work for me. I don't have to alliterate nothing. He does it for me. That's kind of nice. The first thing he says is remember. Remember is a, is a major theme throughout the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Deuteronomy 6. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of slavery. Joshua 6, you remember that they crossed the, the Jordan River on dry land. That's, that, that, that's on purpose because Joshua is the new Moses, so he does a lot of the same things. So he crosses. You remember, what did Joshua tell the Israelites to do after that? Go get you giant stones, right, and, and put them on the truck, and then, then you're going to bring it over here, and we're going to make 12 large stones. We're going to set them up as a type of altars. And, and the reason is that generations later, the young people are going to say, hey, Dad, why are there randomly 12 stones out in the middle of nowhere? Well, son, have I got a story for you. God didn't just deliver us out of Egypt. He brought us into the promised land. And on this moment, we, we, we walked again on dry land. A new generation walking on dry land because God keeps his promises. Don't forget, here's, here's a way to remember God's faithfulness. Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Ecclesiastes 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and 2020 draws near. 1 Corinthians 11, when you had given thanks, Thanks. When he had given it thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. How's it go? 
Do this in remembrance of me. What is the point of communion? The point is that we might remember that we are here and we are we because Christ died. Do not forget that. So what Jesus is telling them is that you have forgotten about Christ. You have forgotten the gospel. All while you're you're standing firm and you're being faithful, you have neglected the part of love rooted in the gospel. But you can't see the gospel without love. You've turned it into microscopic theological issues and you've forgotten the commandment to love, which is why we have a cross to begin with. I think Kevin DeYoung is right when he says the chief theological task now facing the Western church is not to reinvent. It is not to be relevant. It is simply to remember. One of the greatest spiritual traps we can fall into is this failure to remember. When we focus only on our present troubles or are gripped by future fears, we forget who we are. We forget who Christ is. We forget and to remember what God is doing. And so we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put them onto our circumstances. We put them onto our fears. And that is a recipe for disaster. It is a recipe for worry. It is a recipe for anxiety, envy, bitterness, and cold love. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember the cross and his finished work. Remember how Christ prayed for his enemies. Remember how, how, how Christ finished all things upon the cross. Remember the great victory of the empty tomb. Remember, remember, remember. Never forget God's work in history. God's work in the world. God's work in your life. A good Christian biography for many of us would do us wonders, wouldn't it? I mean, oftentimes what we think is my troubles, my fears, my anxieties, my problems have never happened to anyone else in all the world. This is why I think a good Christian biography would do us some good. Here's a guy who's a giant in the faith. He was a real piece of work, right? We, we live in a nation that doesn't want to remember because we think, we're the greatest generation ever. We're going to solve all the problems, right? And what happens is we fail to remember. This church has, has failed to remember. You remember what it was like all those years ago when you were on fire for Jesus? You remember what that was like? What happened? What caused that fire to dwindle? Maybe something worth meditating upon. And remember that truth without love is cold at best. But he tells them, don't just remember. You see it there in verse 5, repents. Notice that Jesus connects repentance with deeds. He doesn't just say, all right, remember and then apologize. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. One of the things I like to tell couples in crisis is couples do not fall out of love. That is what Disney is going to tell you because it sells movie tickets. You know, everything was going great and we just... They weren't the one, you know, and, and we just fell out of love, right? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Probably wouldn't love to begin with because you don't know what love is. Couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. You see, we get to a point where we choose not to forgive. We choose not to listen. We choose to make decisions we know are going to drive our spouse crazy. And what is happening there? You're not following out of love. You're following out of repentance. 
And so your, your love grows cold. Indifference sinks in and sin consumes the relationship. Thus, what a couple needs to do is they need to rekindle the things that brought them together in the first place. Couples that allow daily routine to replace the effort it takes to keep the fire going will fail, right? I mean, we, we know this. You've been married long enough, you know it's different than when you were dating. And if you allow it, indifference will creep in and ruin your relationship. What happens? You've got the truth. I love my wife, but it's a cold love as a result of routine and indifference. You see, repentance is more than an apology. It's a complete transformation, mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical. So too, repenting from a code faith requires more than apology. Just as they worked for the kingdom in verse two, now they must work for love in the kingdom in verse five. They must rekindle their love for their savior. A faith that is merely routine will not grow, go far. It will certainly not grow deep nor will a routine faith change the world. Maybe you're here today, and if you're honest with yourself, you're caught in, in, in a cycle of spiritual routine. You're here today because it's Sunday and it's on your schedule. Your, your phone woke you up this morning and say, hey, remember, it's Sunday, you gotta go to church. That's what you do because you're a Christian. And maybe you're even faithful in, in daily Bible reading and meditating upon scripture, and, 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 but you're starting to feel like, am I doing this only because I'm supposed to do this? And so, so, and so you get distracted while reading scripture because you're just trying to get through it. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, you, you've pushed enemies and, and, and the lost to the side. Why? Why? Because, well, I tried one time and it's not really working. It's not really for me. And then so, so, so it's all just part of routine. Just going through the motions. How long do you think your faith will survive with that? Not very long. It's easy to allow the faith to turn into indifference and routine. Notice this warning, finally, from Jesus at the end of verse 5. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What a warning that is from Jesus. Notice here, he's saying, look, persecution ain't going to close your doors. False teaching ain't going to ruin your church. I'll bring it crashing down. Because my glory is at stake. What a warning that is from Christ. How many of us right now are scared to death of what the next 20, 50 years looks like and how it will affect the church? We see the demographics. We see where we're going politically and culturally in society. And you're really worried about how many of us, you, you turn on Twisting the Bible Nightly TV and you're thinking, man, if this stuff creeps into the church, I don't know what we're going to do. shouldn't be worried about that stuff. You should be worried about Christ closing the doors. You should be worried about Christ closing hearts and minds and ears and eyes because he'll do it if this church chooses a cold love unless they repent. If cold love between husband and wife is unsustainable, it is unsustainable within a church. Let me ask you, just, just in, in conclusion, a few diagnostic questions for you to ask yourself and for us to consider as churches. Number one, do we worship? Are we here right now out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of delights? Think about it. You can, you can go on dates with your spouse, and if it's, 
and, and if you're doing that because you read it in a book or because you saw it on CNN, therefore you thought that's a good idea, let's just do it because that's what good couples are supposed to do. How long is that going to help your relationship? Not long. Because if you do it out of duty, not out of delight, what good is it? So too, if we are gathering for worship because this is what we're supposed to do, what good is that? But if we gather out of the delight of our soul to, in, to corporately lift up our Savior, what is God going to really do with that? Do we desire the things of God or the things of man or the things of my own heart? What idols are growing in your heart right now? We live in a society full of identities and a society full of idols. Are you engaging with the spiritual disciplines? Scripture, prayer, meditation, fasting, humility, love, worship, and all the others. Does your spiritual journey feel like a routine? Has COVID led to a deeper intimacy with God or indifference towards the matters of faith? You know, one of the things is, is that COVID, being that you're at home by yourself, have nothing else to do, would have been a great opportunity for Christians to grow deeper into the faith. Can I tell you what every pastor is scared to death of? People got out of routine and they're not coming back. Should have never been routine to begin with. So has COVID been an op- a good opportunity despite all the struggles and everything else? Or has it stirred the indifference that was already, or maybe it, 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 it revealed the indifference that was already in our hearts? Finally, if things in your life and in this church life don't change, where will we be? And where will you be a year from now, five years from now, 50 years from now? So, what does love got to do with it? Isn't that the question of the text? Well, it has everything to do with it, right? You need truth. You need love. Notice the conclusion Jesus offers them. What a conclusion it is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And by the way, notice there, it doesn't say he who has an ear, let him hear what he said to the church. Because this isn't just a problem with Ephesus. It's a problem in America. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, the one that fixes this problem, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Another Old Testament reference, which will pop up in, I believe, chapter 21, 22. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise. Isn't that really what we want? To be in the presence of he who is both truth and love? Here's the good news. You can have that right now in Christ. So maybe you're here and and you've never truly embraced the gospel. And maybe you're believing the truth, but what you need is the love of Christ upon the cross. Maybe you're here and you feel like, man, my faith, I'm only here because I'm supposed to be here. My parents made me. I have a drug problem. They dragged me to church. Would you rekindle the love for the Savior? Maybe you're here and you're all emotional affection for Christ, but you lack depth of faith and truth. Would you come and remember? Would you come and repent? Let's pray. Father, ask that you would be so kind as to convict our hearts in this time of invitation. We need to remember, we need to repent. 
What we need is both truth and love. It's a major theme in John's writings, and rightly so. We have a tendency to choose an extreme, truth or love. Here the gospel says, here's both. Receive both. Lord, I I believe this is a, a, a wonderful church. May we be a church that is defined by both because our eyes are on Jesus and we are centered on his gospel. May we grow in this area and be faithful in all things. Name your glorious son, we pray. Amen.